Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study this evening is New Gods. And the title of the study uh, comes from a passage in the scriptures which we'll be looking at uh, a little further down, down the line. But <clears throat> in looking at this topic, I just want to uh, pinpoint an aspect. This uh, subject, the subject matter of this study here today is, is uh, considered milk, uh, sorry, considered meat, not milk. If you know what I mean, you know, sometimes we, we have the milk and it's good to have the milk, but in order to grow, we need to have meat. So this means this is heavy stuff. This is going to be uh, serious. And for some people, it might be in the category of this is a hard saying, who can hear it? So uh, I just want to warn you up the front. So the reason we share this is not to, to upset anyone unnecessarily or to condemn anyone. It's just to bring to our attention some things that are of vital importance. And so if you hear some startling things uh, in the study, uh, like I said, the, the reason is we're dealing with heavy material. So if, uh, if you're a new Christian or if you're still on the milk, I'm sure you'll find some tidbits in this meat that you can benefit from. Uh, and I, I pray that that will be the case for everyone. And uh, in looking at this topic of new gods, and we've been talking a lot about the, the Trinity, and we've been talking about what the Bible says, and we covered some grounds. It's... Uh, important to understand the practical significance of the things we say. It's one thing to talk about, well, this theory is right and this theory is wrong, but what does it really matter practically for us today, living in the last days? Are we talking about some on the side issue and we're not concerned with the uh, present true things, or is this something that is of significance? That's what I want to uncover today. That's what we want to explore together. And so I pray you'll give me your attention uh, and, and your, your, uh, you're, you'll exercise your gray matter, as you say. So don't just sit there and listen. Please think and, and, you know, chew over what we're talking about. So we'll start off with this question. And the question has been asked, and, and I've asked this question many times to a lot of people. And a lot of people ask this question too. Where is God the Holy Spirit in the Bible? Now, that's a good question, and it needs an answer. And if uh, you look in the Bible you will not find an answer to this question. Or in other words, you won't find it. It's not in the Bible. All through the scriptures, you will never find this God called God, the Holy Spirit. Now that alone should finish our study right here. And we can call it the end. But uh, I want to go to a little bit more detail uh, because sometimes the deception is a little harder to uncover. And so in looking at this aspect of the Holy Spirit, we also want to uncover uh, an important deception that the enemy has, has pulled off on the majority of people when it comes to the issue of the Holy Spirit. And when we look at this, I'm mindful of, of uh, what a lot of people say and think, well, they say, you know, the Holy Spirit is a mystery and, and we cannot understand it. We shouldn't talk about it. The nature of the Spirit is a mystery. And that is true. We're not dealing with the nature of the Spirit in this study. We're dealing with the identity of the Spirit. There's a difference between nature and identity. We're not dealing with the what and how, that's the nature. We're dealing with the who, that's the identity. That's the important aspect. And so who is this spirit and why do we have a very common reference to, to today to what is called God, the Holy Spirit? And as I said, it's not found in the Bible. Let's briefly have a little Bible study uh, about the Spirit and see what the Bible does reveal about the Spirit. This will help us appreciate the rest of the things we're going to talk about tonight. So we'll start with John chapter 17 and verse 11. And this Bible study is, is all the verses are there and, and hopefully it'll be short enough. You'll get it within a few minutes. John 17, 11, Jesus says, speaking, praying to his Father, he says, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast, whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Okay, very simple verse. From this we learn that the Father is holy. Isn't that right? It's going to be a very simple study. We're going to start simple. We can get to the meat uh, as well. But So God the Father is holy. Very simple aspect. And another verse, Jesus again says in John 4, 23 and 24, speaking to the woman at the well. He says, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. When Jesus said God is a spirit, who was he talking about? 
Father. Concerning about the Father. So from this we can also conclude that God the Father is a spirit. So if God the Father is holy and God the Father is spirit, is it uh, safe to conclude that the Father is a holy spirit? Okay, we have a few hesitant nods. It's, it's the, 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 the expression holy, when Jesus says holy father, that's, that's a description of what God is. It's, it's an adjective. It describes that God is holy. That's what holy is. We, we tend to think of, of uh, you know, holy uh, and holy spirit as a name. But here we see that the father is holy and the father is a spirit. He is a holy spirit, according to Christ. He's the only one who came from heaven to earth to reveal these things to us. That's authoritative uh, information here. Uh, what about Christ? What else do we learn? Let's go to uh, Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we have the apostles praying when they were being persecuted and told not to preach in Christ's name. And in their prayer, this is what they say, but by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Okay, again, same conclusion. Very easy. Jesus Christ is holy. I think we all know that. I'm just using very simply building a foundation from the scriptures. And uh, of course, here, these apostles were praying to who? To the Father, because they're saying, you know, stretch forth your hand uh, and do wonders through the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, this is perhaps the question that you're anticipating. Well, what about spirit? And in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, we're told... And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Who's the last Adam? Christ. He has made a quickening spirit or a spirit that gives life or a life-giving spirit. We were talking about that. I think a number of studies, studies have covered that. So we can also conclude from that that Jesus Christ is what? A spirit. Correct? So is it then safe to conclude that he is a holy spirit? That's what we found. Four verses. So this is pretty much the end of the study. So we found that the Father is holy. He is a spirit. He is a holy spirit. And the Son is holy. He is a spirit. He is a holy spirit. So this is the Bible explanation. This is the Bible understanding about the identity of the spirit. The identity of the spirit is never presented as independent of the Father and the Son. It is always linked to the Father and the Son because the Father is spirit and the Son is Spirit, and we, we need to cover this aspect just quickly because I'm sure someone might be thinking, well, what, what does that mean? How many spirits are there? Are there one? Is there one spirit, two spirits? And the, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2.18, For through Him, that's Christ, we both have access by one spirit unto whom? The Father. Through Christ, we have access by one spirit unto the Father. How many ways are there to the Father? There's only one. Jesus said, I am the way. There's only one door. And that way is by the one spirit. Because the Father is spirit and Christ is spirit. And the only way through is uh, to the Father, of course, is Christ. And in Romans 8, 9, it helps us understand what, what, how we can put that together. You know, there's one spirit. What is this one spirit? And it says here, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So here, Paul is talking about the same thing. He says, the spirit that dwells in you, it's called the spirit of God. And it's called the spirit of Christ. And if you don't have that spirit, you are none of his. You see, when we have the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, we really have the Father and the Son. I think that's clear. Are you with me? And uh, we could go to a great length to many, many verses. But, but I'm just giving you a brief, basic foundation here that, that is simple enough uh, to present to children's Sabbath school even. And that goes a lot to what doctrines you might believe. That's a good test. If you can explain it to a six-year-old, then you understand it. If you can't, then you might be believing a mystery. Isn't that right? <clears throat> anyway, that's, that's a, a point that's admitted freely today. So what about the identity? Does the Bible actually spell out clearly for us the identity of this spirit? In other words, are we saying that this spirit is Christ himself who comes <laughs> with the spirit of the Father? And the Bible says that very plainly in 2 Corinthians 3.17. It says, Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is 
liberty. And the reason why the Bible emphasizes uh, that Christ is that spirit is because Christ came and he was tempted like us and he overcame in order to give us this liberty. That's why the Bible emphasizes that this spirit is the spirit of Christ. It's not just the spirit of Christ, it's the spirit of the Father as well. But the emphasis on Christ is because he's the one that overcame for us. And he gives us this spirit, his very own life, as we just heard. And if you don't have that life, you cannot have liberty. If you have anyone else other than Christ, you don't have liberty. That's what that verse says, right? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that spirit is the Lord. You see, that's how the Father and the Son are one. Jesus says, I and my Father are, are one. And then the Bible also says, He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. So when we're joined to the Lord, we become one spirit with Him. And Jesus says, the same union that He and the Father share, He wants to share with us. In other words, He and the Father are one in spirit, or one spirit. Now, don't ask me to explain the how of that, or the nature of that. But we know the identity of the spirit. You with me? Now that's, that's significant, keep in mind. So the, our conclusion, I think, we can draw from this very clearly, that there is one Holy Spirit of God and of Christ. Not God, the Holy Spirit, an individual being or person with God and Christ. Can you see the distinction here? One is a Bible teaching, the other is not even in the Bible. So I want to trace that a little bit because the devil has a lot to do with misunderstanding the identity of the Spirit. And he has a purpose and he has a reason for that. And hopefully we'll discover that reason tonight. Because like I said, a lot of people, uh, when sharing these things, uh, they, they ask, well, what does it matter? You know, well, you see it this way, we see it this way. Well, when we get to heaven, we'll find out. Have you heard that? Yeah. When we get to heaven, we will find out. Yeah, that's for sure. But what about if God has revealed things to us already? And the knowledge of them is actually necessary for us to ensure that we actually will step through the gates. Because, brothers and sisters, there is a deception in the last days. And the purpose and the design of the deception is simply this. To get you to miss out on heaven. That's the purpose of deception. All, this, uh, uh, all the prophetic revelations about what's going to happen in the last days, its purpose is to steal salvation from you. And Satan has created a very clever deception. It is so subtle and so clever that he has already accomplished what he has been dreaming about through, from the very, very beginning. Anyway, we'll come to that. So that's the conclusion so far. I want us to keep this in mind because I don't want us as we go along to forget the distinction between the two. So... The Bible teaches very clearly that there is a spirit, it's the spirit of God, it's the spirit of Christ. It's not another being, it's not another individual, it's not another person. Now it's interesting that when God found, established the Advent movement, He established it on this solid foundation. We saw that yesterday, if you were here yesterday, we covered that. If you weren't here, you can get the DVD. But through the history of the church, the devil has time and again tried to infiltrate a particular misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit. One of these first attempts in uh, the church is in 1891. In 1891, there was a brother by the name of Chapman. His brother Chapman was a preacher, and he had a little bit of a grievance. You see, the other preachers and ministers, uh, they were not recommending him to go preach. They were actually saying he shouldn't preach. And the reason why he shouldn't preach was because he had some ideas and some theories and concepts that they were not comfortable with. So, of course, uh, he had... Uh, the idea to write to Mrs. White a letter to complain about this dilemma that he's being persecuted by the brethren. He's not allowed to go out and preach and teach and uh, to get her to maybe uh, mediate for him or something. He, he just wanted to air his grievances to, to the prophet. And uh, this is what he told her in the letter. So he writes this letter in 1891 to Mrs. White. And this is what he says. Elder Robinson states positively that I cannot be sent out to present the truth to others until some points held by me are changed or modified. He quotes as a sample, my idea in reference to the Holy Ghost, not being the Spirit of God, which is Christ, but the angel Gabriel. On all fundamental points, I'm in perfect harmony with our people. But when I try to show what seems to me to be new light, on the truth, those in authority brand me as a fellow with queer ideas of the Bible. Now you can see very clearly here is the element. It's a long letter. There were other issues, but I want to focus on this particular point because it's relevant to what we're saying. So his understanding was that the Holy Spirit was 
someone other than the Father or the Son, right? He came to see it as the angel, Gabriel. He believed that, and he, he believed he could show that from the Bible. As a matter of fact, he believed this was new light. Wow. And uh, he says, they won't let me preach unless, uh, unless I, I come back in line. And interestingly enough, he actually reveals here what the church believed at the time. He says, I don't, be, I don't longer believe that the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of God, which is Christ. Hey, we have a pointer here, right? There we go. Not, so he didn't believe that the Spirit of, of God, the Spirit is the Spirit of God, which is Christ. But he now believed something new, something that is, it's the angel, Gabriel. Another being, another individual besides the Father and the Son, namely, Gabriel. So this is a misunderstanding, a twisting of the Bible truth. We just saw the foundation. And he felt that this was new light. Well, was this really new light? You know, this, have you heard this before? Okay. Well, it might sound like new light, but actually this is old error. As a matter of fact, Islam teaches the very same concept. From 610, that's when Islam started. Islam considers the Holy Spirit to be another name for the archangel who? Gabriel. In Surah 297, the Quran states that Gabriel delivered the word of Allah to the Prophet Muhammad. And in Surah 16102, Gabriel specifically called the Holy Spirit. All Quranic references to the Holy Spirit refer therefore to this angel. So what Brother Chapman here was thinking is new light was actually old error. That the Holy Spirit is someone other than the Father or the Son. In this case, particularly Gabriel. Now, I share this and some people said, oh, no, no, Islam doesn't teach that. You need to study it properly because that is what they teach. And I had someone object and they said, no, no, that's, that's not true. And, and these are the verses that are quoted there. Uh, I won't read those to you in Arabic. This is the English translation, yeah, but the references were given. Uh, it is very, very clear and fundamental for the Muslims to believe this. You know why? Because they oppose the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. They believe it is polytheism. And all they hear from the Christians all the time is Father, Son, and Spirit. Isn't that right? Three persons making up one God. And so it's very clear in the Quran for them that the Spirit is not uh, part of a Trinity. The Spirit is the angel, Gabriel. And that's, obviously that, that's wrong, but that's what they believe. Uh, the Father and the Son. Yeah, well, they have other ideas about the Father. There is only one God, and the Son is not really a Son, and so on. He's only a prophet. But uh, the point I want to focus on here is, is the Spirit, because we want to trace this particular concept on what Satan has been trying to bring into the church, and it's not something that is new. It's something that is actually old. Anyway, let's see what Mrs. White replied to Brother Chapman. She wrote him back, and she, this, is what she, this is what she told him. Your ideas do not harmonize with the light which God has given me. It is not essential for you to know and be able to define just what the Holy Spirit is. Christ tells us that the Holy Spirit is the Comforter, and the Comforter is the Holy Ghost. This refers to the omnipresence of the Spirit of Christ called the Comforter. Amen. Is that what we found in the Bible? Yes. So she told him, Brother Chapman, no, these, these ministering brethren are right. They should be concerned. What you're teaching is not in harmony with the truth. It, yeah, essentially, it is error. And you know, this statement is actually the source of the quote that a lot of people quote from Acts of the Apostles, page 52, which says, the nature of the Holy Spirit is a mystery. We cannot define it. That quote comes from this letter that Mrs. White wrote to Chapman. She was writing it to someone who was trying to define that the Holy Spirit is a different individual to the Father and the Son. And people use that quote today to silence anyone who tries to teach the Bible truth about the Spirit. You familiar with that objection? You know, you start talking about the Spirit and someone will pretty quickly say, Oh, brother, Mrs. White says, the nature of the Spirit is a mystery. You can't define it. We better be quiet because silence is golden. That's where that statement comes from. And so if you read the whole letter that Mrs. White wrote, you'll understand what she says. In that statement, she defines the true understanding of the Spirit in harmony with the Scriptures, that it is the omnipresence of the Spirit of Christ called the Comforter. And then she goes on to tell him, you need to come into harmony with your brethren. Now, my brother, it is truth that we want and must have, but do not introduce error as new truth. She called it error very clearly. Now, his error was, someone would say, well, his error was he thought it was Gabriel. 
But I want us to keep something in mind. It doesn't matter what he thought it was or who he thought it was. He removed it from the Father and the Son. He thought that the Spirit is someone other than the Father and the Son. Who it is after that is secondary. The key here is the Spirit is someone different. That's the point I want us to keep in mind because as we shall see, the same problem keeps reoccurring time and again. But Mrs. White gave him some good counsel. She told him, you need to be in harmony with your brethren. Well, what were the brethren teaching at that time about the Spirit? We already saw what the Bible says. We saw what he implied in his letter to her. But let's just look at a few other samples just to be sure, because that's the counsel she gave him. What were the brethren teaching concerning the Spirit around the, period, uh, around the year 1891? That's when she wrote that letter back to him. For example, here is a quote from Uriah Smith, 1891, from the GC Daily Bulletin. He says, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. It is also the Spirit of Christ. Is that what we found in the Bible? Okay, so this is just confirmation of the foundation that is laid in the Scriptures, the Bible truth. Here's another one. This is E.J. Wagner, Christ and His Righteousness. Here we find that the Holy Spirit is both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Same thing. Now, E.J. Wagner, uh, you know, when, when I mention E.J. Wagner, what number do you think of? <laughs> or what year? Because he was one of those messengers in 1888. So this is, this is a man who was used by God in that time period. And this was his understanding. It was in harmony with the scriptures. You see, the correct understanding of the spirit is the key to righteousness by faith. You realize that? Hopefully you realize that by the end of the study, if you haven't already. I might covered that and a few people covered that, but that's a key understanding. It's not some secondary issue. It's not just some opinion that some people see it this way and that way. Or let's focus on the important stuff. It is of vital importance. Here's another one. A number of years later, 1898, Jane Loughborough. We learn from this language that we're, when we speak of the Spirit of God, we are really speaking of His presence and power. Very clear. And Mrs. White's counsel to Chapman was, listen, brother, you need to be in harmony with your brethren. This, the presence and power of God. Is the presence and power of God someone different to him? No, the right answer is no. Is that correct? Obviously not. And where, where did Loughborough get this idea that the Spirit is the presence and power of God? From the scriptures. And not only that, but the Spirit of Prophecy confirms that. Here is the same year that Ellen White wrote that letter to Chapman. 18... 91, the divine spirit that the world's redeemer promised to send is the presence and power of God. How plain is that? She said this refers to the omnipresence of the spirit of Christ called the comforter. It's the presence and the power of God. The presence and the power of God is not someone else. It's not another person to God. It's not another being. It's not another individual. It's God's own personal presence and power. So when God gives us then his spirit, does that mean he gives us himself or someone else? Himself. Himself. Is spirit, if the spirit is his presence, it's his power, it's not someone other than him. It has to be himself. And that's exactly what we're told. Here's a statement as well from Testimonies, Volume 7. Here's what it says. In giving us his spirit, God gives us himself, making himself a fountain of divine influences to give health and life to the world. Here's the key. When God gives us himself, he's really giving us his own life. That's why it cannot be someone else. And when you understand, when you adopt the understanding or start to teach that it is someone else, you are cutting off this life. You're, not, you're no longer now getting God's life. You're getting something or someone else. That's the problem. That's why the spirit, by definition, spirit means life. Jesus said that. The words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So when you receive the spirit, you're receiving the life of the giver. Christ and the Father. But if you separate the Spirit, which is what the devil was trying to do through Brother Chapman and convince him he had this new light when it was old air, and says, oh, look, look, the Spirit is someone else. And he, had, he, had, he must have had some scriptures. I don't know what verses he would have had. And, and he came up with the idea, oh, it must be Gabriel. Someone else. That's the problem with this idea. The devil made another attempt. In 1903, this time it was a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more polished, and he used someone who was uh, a bit higher up in the Adventist uh, church at the time, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg was a very intelligent physician, uh, and uh, he was really blessed of God. But uh, unfortunately, he was used to bring in what is called the Alpha of Heresies. 
And uh, of course, the uh, history tells us, you know, the Battle Creek Sanitarium uh, burned the year before in 1902. It burned to the ground and they wanted to, uh, to rebuild and to come up with some funds. And so Daniels, the GC president at the time, recommended that Kellogg can write a book. And since he was a famous, a world famous physician, the sales of his book would generate some funds that they could use to build the sanitarium. Sounds like a great plan. And so Kellogg uh, wrote the book that is called The Living Temple. Familiar with that book? And in The Living Temple, start, problems started to develop because he inserted there some of the theology that he had come to accept and to believe. And uh, Daniels had warned him not to include these things in the book. He wanted the book to just be purely on uh, uh, physiology, you know, just a medical book. But uh, Kellogg couldn't help it. He put some of his ideas in there. And Mrs. White had a lot to say about the book. Anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. But one day, Daniels was having a conversation with Kellogg. And the things that he learned and he heard from Kellogg alarmed him so much that he decided to write a letter of concern to Willie White, Mrs. White's son. And this is the letter we're going to look at here. And this is what concerned uh, Daniels at the time. This is a letter written in 1903. And he's relaying to W.C. White his conversation with Kellogg. He says, Kellogg had come to believe in the Trinity. It means he, had, he did not believe that before. Isn't that right? Because the church didn't believe in that concept at all at the time. He told me that he now believed in God the Father. The, the, the dots is God the Father, God the Son, and God the... Holy Spirit. I want to just focus on the Spirit. He believed in God, the Holy Ghost, or God, the Holy Spirit. And his view was that it was God, the Holy Ghost, that filled all space and every living thing. He said that if he had believed this before writing the book, he could have expressed his views without giving the wrong impression the book now gives. Interesting. So Kellogg had come to believe in God, the Holy Spirit. An individual besides the Father and the Son. Not the angel Gabriel, he is now a god in his own right. Same problem, variation, just a little bit. You see that? The same element that Chapman had. And he believed that this God, the Holy Spirit, was everywhere. He filled all space and every living thing. Now, Mrs. White later on, uh, told, uh, in a number of statements, said that uh, what Kellogg was beginning to teach was what she referred to as pantheistic ideas. You know what pantheism is? Pan is, is the name of God. Uh, the, uh, pan is everything and theism uh, or theos is God. It's the belief that God is everything or in everything. There's variations of that panentheism. But anyway, essentially, God is in everything. And that's what he came to believe. And the God that he had come to believe as in every living thing was the God that he called what? God, the Holy Spirit, an individual, a person who is not the Father and it's not the Son. A person in his own right called God, the Holy Spirit. You with me? I, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm repeating and being really simplistic about it because I really want you to see the, the point. And he come, had come to believe that that was in everything. Now, this belief essentially, Mrs. White tells us, and we'll, we'll read that statement and then we'll talk about it. I mean, in sermons and talks... The next year, 1904, this is what Mrs. White had to say about that. All through my life, I've had the same errors to me, though not always in the same form. In living temple, the assertion is made that God is in the flower, in the leaf, in the sinner. But God does not live in the sinner. The word declares that he abides only in the hearts of those who love him and do righteousness. God does not abide in the heart of the sinner. It is the enemy who abides there. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. There is so much there. I hope to maybe unpack it a little bit. Uh, first of all, she says she has had to meet errors that are the same, but not always in the same form. Same error, different form. That's what we're dealing with here. The same error, separating the spirit of God from God, making it someone else. The different form is, well, it's Gabriel. Or this time it is God the... Holy Spirit. And then she pinpoints the living temple. And she says the assertion is made there that God is in everything, including the sinner. Now, according to Kellogg, which God did he believe was everywhere? 
God, the Holy Spirit, an individual being. You see, this is the problem. And when you believe that God is everywhere, you, you, you are led to the conclusion that he must also be in all people, sinner and saint alike. Now, this, this, this is God, is, is the God of the Bible living and dwelling in the heart of sinners? Does the Bible teach that? The Bible teaches Christ in you, the hope of glory. Is that to a specific group of people or to all humanity? It's a promise given to all, but only those who believe receive that. Isn't that right? And Mrs. White here spells it out very clearly. She says, God does not abide in the heart of the sinner. Actually, who's there? Satan. So here Kellogg was saying, God the Spirit, and he's everywhere, including sinners. Mrs. White said, no, God is not everywhere. Not in the sinner. Who's in the sinner is actually Satan. So you can draw a very solid conclusion here. We're not going to draw it just yet. It's coming down the line. But you might be seeing where we're going. You see, there's a problem here. What Kellogg was introducing was a mask for Satan. And Mrs. White pinpointed that very clearly and his concepts that surrounded that. But uh, let's just keep going and see that spelled out just a little bit clearer. These pantheistic ideas that Kellogg was preaching were not his ideas. Pantheistic ideas regarding God in nature are framed by who? Lucifer, the fallen angel. That's the source of these ideas. Kellogg wasn't coming up with anything new. His inspiration was really Lucifer. And Lucifer had twisted in Kellogg's mind his understanding of God, particularly God's spirit and where God's spirit was. And he got him to write it in this book and praise the Lord. If it wasn't for the spirit of prophecy, brothers and sisters, this would have swept the church at the time. You realize that? If you look at the history and study the history of, our, of the church at that time period, if it wasn't for Mrs. White, this belief would have swept the whole church. As a matter of fact, it took out most of the medical workers, medical missionary workers. They were taken with Kellogg, a lot of them. And so the source of these ideas is Lucifer. So it's Lucifer's desire to get this across. And he has tried time and again. Let's look at another aspect about that. Again, Kellogg wasn't coming up with anything new. What he thought was new light is old air. This is a man by the name of Ignatius of Loyola. Uh, you probably wouldn't think uh, much of the name, except that he happens to be the founder of the Jesuit order, the Society of Jesus in, the, in 1534. Of course, the Jesuit order was founded in response to the Reformation. It's the counter-reformation mechanism that Rome came up with, and it's still to this day countering the Reformation. Anyway, in, in this book, we won't go uh, to, into too much detail, but this man, Ignatius of Loyola, he wrote a book, and his book is called The Spiritual Exercises. It's a manual, and it was basically written as a result of visions that he received, and it's a training manual for the Jesuit order. In other words, it's a brainwashing uh, manual, in short, because it turns the Jesuit into being this non-thinking automaton that will do anything that the superior commands at the drop of a hat. Okay, that's, that's really what it is. I'm not going to go to all those details. But the writing of this book, this manual, the instructions that he received, he claims that he got them through visions. He received them through visions. Now we're going to go look at his visions a little bit. But before we do, I just want to see, uh, the Spirit of Prophecy mentions the Jesuit order. You realize that? Has anyone read the Great Controversy? Yeah, it's mentioned right there, and it's not mentioned uh, by chance. It's mentioned for a reason. Here's what it says. At this time, this is the time of the Reformation. At this time, the order of the Jesuits was created, the most cruel, unscrupulous, and powerful of all the champions of popery. Now, that's important to keep in mind. Most powerful, unscrupulous. What's another word for unscrupulous? Ruthless. Unprincipled, immoral, lawless, no good, okay, thank you, that's a nice, rich variety of meanings. The most cruel, unscrupulous, and powerful of all the champions of property, that's the Jesuit order. And uh, these visions that Loyola had are very interesting. Here is what we're told. He never, this is a quote from the book, The Secret History of the Jesuits, and this is what it says. He never doubted, that's Loyola, the reality of these revelations. He chased Satan with a stick as he would have done a mad dog. He talked to the Holy Spirit as one does to another person actually. 
Why don't you think about that for a minute? Here's Loyola, and he used to have these visions in a cave. And, uh, and he had all kinds of visions. And sometimes he would go into vision or into trance or whatever it was. And uh, he, he would do that by meditating on the Trinity, actually. That's what he would do. And then he'd have all these visions and, 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 and things appear to him. But it's interesting that because of his understanding, his belief, and his theology, in these visions, he came at one point to talk to what he believed to be the Holy Spirit as a person, as one does to another person, actually. So he wasn't talking to Christ. He wasn't talking to the Father. He was talking to this Spirit. And in their theology, it's God, the Holy Spirit, someone besides the Father and the Son. This is years, years and years before Kellogg even was born. Now, I don't think I need to ask you, who do you think was uh, causing all this stuff to happen to this poor man's mind? I find it interesting that here is uh, how Satan, uh, Satan would come to him, he would chase him off, and then Satan would still come to him in another form. Isn't that right? And what form did he come to him as? As the Holy Spirit. And convinced him that he was talking to the Holy Spirit as a person does to another person. Interesting that Satan is doing that. Here is what someone uh, who was really inspired said as far as what inspiration, uh, how inspiration goes. Notice what it says here. This is Mrs. White describing uh, an interesting scene about inspiration. She says, the whole room seemed to be filled with the atmosphere of heaven. A holy sacred presence seemed to be in my room. I laid down my pen and was in a waiting attitude to see what the spirit would say unto me. I saw no person. I heard no audible voice, but a heavenly watcher seemed close beside me. I felt that I was in the presence of who? Jesus. That's why we refer to that as the spirit of prophecy, which is the testimony of Jesus. And he does that by his spirit. Here's another one. It says, I felt a presence in my room as I have many times before, and I lost all recollection of what I was about. I seemed to be in the presence of Jesus. He was communicating to me that which I was to be, in which I was to be instructed. No audible word was spoken to my ear, but to my Mind. Okay, now it's interesting because I hope we're seeing a picture develop here. That Satan has a plan to cause confusion over a particular aspect when it comes to God, and that's the Spirit. And a few times he tried to bring it into our church, but it was defeated. I know why I wrote to Chapman, and then he it didn't go on. Whatever he had, it didn't come in. Kellogg, and it was a lot more danger, and it was a little bit more sophisticated, but that was counteracted as well. And it didn't come in. And we're finding that in both cases, it wasn't anything new. It was already from before. We saw that in Islam. We saw that in, uh, in the Jesuit order. Uh, but let's look at uh, how things are a little bit more today. This is how things are as far as the devil is working today. This is popular Pentecostalism today and the popular televangelists. Now, I'm not going to go into all great detail. But uh, I think you're aware that there is a lot of emphasis today among these people on what they call the power of the Spirit. Isn't that right? And there's all these activities and things that happen in the church. People jumping up and down, people rolling on the floor, people doing all kinds of bizarre things. And all these things are attributed to who? Holy the Holy Spirit. Isn't that right? That's what they say. And you have things like tongues. You, have, you even have this in church. The, and this is actually a title of an article. Laugh your way to salvation. These believe, people believe when they receive the power of the Spirit, they just start rolling on the floor, laughing uncontrollably in church. And they believe that's the power of the Spirit. Now you tell me, who do you think is deceiving these people and providing all these antics that they're going through? Satan. And what's he masking himself as to them. They don't think it's Satan. They think it is the Holy Spirit. And in many times, some of them believe all kinds of different ideas. It's hard to pinpoint what Pentecostals believe because it's so far out. But the majority of them believe that the Spirit is someone besides the Father and the, and the Son. And as a matter of fact, they many times will pray to the Spirit because they want this power so much. You know, and some people who might not speak in tongues, for example, they feel left out. or They really pray earnestly. Poor people who are deceived, they will pray earnestly 
And they say, you know, and they start praying to the Holy Spirit to receive this gift or, or whatever it might be, whether it's tongues or whether it's la uh, laughing or whatever it might be. And there's all kinds of bizarre activities that have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit as far as the Bible is concerned. That these peop poor people find themselves in. And it is really the work of the enemy. Not only there, here's, here's another example of that. Proclaiming the power of Pentecost. Now this, uh, this focus on Pentecost is not just in these Pentecostal groups. This happens to be a charismatic mass on Pentecost Sunday. The beauty of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. You see, this, there is something that is sweeping all Christendom. And you find a common denominator if you look in the right spot. It is something that has to do with a misunderstanding of the identity of the Spirit of God. And uh, like I asked a question, I think we all know who's behind that. And this is the, this is the website where that flyer comes from. Yeah, it's just last week, that's right. Uh, Catholic Charismatic Renewal. Fully Charismatic, Eucharistic, and Marian under the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. That's the whole package, fully charismatic. The focus there, of course, is on the power of the Spirit, the charisma of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, being baptized in the Spirit. And the belief in these people's minds is that this Spirit is not the Father. This Spirit is not the Son. This Spirit is someone else called God, the Holy Spirit. And of course, uh, here's another example of that. This is a, uh, this is a website. You can't see everything there. It's a website uh, by some Jesuit children of Loyola, spiritual children of Loyola. St. Ignatius' devotion to the Holy Trinity. That's why he would meditate on. That's what inspired a lot of these things. As a matter of fact, he says that the Trinity appeared to him. I don't know how. Don't ask me. He doesn't explain. But that's, that's why he says he had these visions. And all these people here, all these contributors are all SJ. You know what the SJ at the end of their name is? Society of Jesus or Jesuit. These are Jesuit priests. And this is what the conclusion is of one of them after uh, writing this article. This is what he says. I gave a talk to seniors last year on relationship with God and encouraged them to pray with each of the divine persons individually. The one they had the most trouble with is the Holy Spirit. Surprise, surprise. There is something in the human mind that finds it difficult, impossible, to relate to someone that the scripture does not present as an individual in his own right. You see, this is the, what he's saying here is a struggle. These are Catholics. These are people who are honest many times, who love the Lord, who don't know or understand some of the things that we're sharing here. So what we're sharing is not against them. We're dealing with the concepts. Okay, I just want to make that clear because we're not picking on anyone in particular here. We're dealing with the concepts and seeing how pervasive the deception is among people. So these poor people, he says he found that he's encouraging them to pray with each one. When they say praying with each one in the Catholic term there, it means to pray to. So they pray to the Father and pray to the Son. And they had trouble trying to work out how to pray to the Spirit and having that. But they do it. They still do it. And he gives some tips how he can do that. Anyway. I'm not going to go into that. But this, this is not just the work of the Society of Jesus. This is a common Catholic practice. Notice, we'll go straight up to the head. This is Pope the, uh, John the 23rd. This is the book, the documents of Vatican II. You know Vatican II? What happened in Vatican II in the 60s? And they had these ecumenical media, uh, sorry, the Vatican Council. And the purpose of the Vatican Council was simply this. To bring the heretical Protestant uh, reformers or you know, rebels <laughs> back into the fold. And in order to bless the proceedings of the council, the Pope offers this prayer to the Holy Spirit for the success of the ecumenical council. And this is what the Pope, it's recorded, it's written in the book. Here's what it says. Oh, Holy Spirit, who's he praying to? He's not praying to the Father. He's not praying to the Son, because that's their theology, because they say the person of the Father is one, the person of the Son is another, and the person of the Spirit is another. Contrary to what the Bible says. O Holy Spirit, sent by the Father in the name of Jesus, who art present in the church and thus infallibly guided, pour forth, we pray, the fullness of the, thy gifts upon the ecumenical council. We pray also for those sheep who are not now of the one fold of Jesus Christ. That's 
all of you and me. So the Pope's praying for us. And what's his prayer? That glory in the name of Christian, they may come at last to unity under the governance of the one shepherd. Amen. This is Vatican Council. This is in the 60s, 62 or something like that. 67 is that helpful? Yeah, interestingly enough. So the Pope here is praying for these lost sheep to come under the governance of who? The one shepherd. Who's the one shepherd? Him. Now when they're praying, who's behind that system? You tell me. Okay, you said it, not me. Who do you think answers that prayer? So they're thinking they're praying to God in heaven. Some of them know better. And the way that Satan has covered his tracks is by hiding behind which title? The Holy Spirit. Someone separate from the Father and the Son. Now, I tell you what, Satan has been busy answering that prayer. Very busy, as we shall see. But I want to make that very clear, because you know, someone say, oh, Brother, what you're saying almost sounds blasphemous. I'm just tracing the trail of the serpent, brothers and sisters. And uh, well, time is almost up. We're almost there. I'm just tracing the, the, the trail of the serpent to uncover a deep deception. And the deception is so amazingly clever that people see it and say, whoa, this sounds like blasphemy. It sounds like blasphemy. That's why we looked at what the Bible has to say. That's why we saw very clearly the biblical foundation. And having seen that, we can see the trail of the serpent. So we just want to blow the cover fully at this. Because these people, they don't profess that they worship the devil. They are professed Christians, the Catholics. Isn't that right? Now, we might know different as a result of prophecy, but that's the image that they portray. But let's look at another group of people, and this is where it starts getting really interesting. What's really behind the scenes, and who's really working behind the scenes? This is Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. She's the founder of the Theosophical Society. She was a Mason, and this is a, a book that is uh, authoritative for the Theosophical Society, for Masons and New Agers, and so on. She is a, a, a spiritual leader. Has anyone heard of her before? Okay, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Anyway, uh, this is what she had to say when it comes to this. Now, this is interesting. She says, Lucifer is divine and terrestrial light, the Holy Ghost and Satan at one and the same time. The Secret Doctrine, published in 1888. Do you see something interesting here? So here it is spelled out by these people. Now these people, they worship Satan in their secret ritual stuff that they carry on. They worship the devil, Masons and all that stuff. These are not Christian organizations. They're revealing to you here the secret doctrine, okay? In their understanding, when they talk about the Holy Spirit, someone besides the Father and the Son, it really is who? Lucifer. That's who they worship. And Lucifer has been busy promoting this idea that the Spirit is someone besides the Father and the Son to allow a position for him to slip behind and claim worship. Isn't that what he wants? That's what he wanted in heaven. He said, I will sit on the sides of the uh, I'll put my throne up near with the Most High. I'll sit on the sides of the North. I will be like the Most High. And when Jesus came here to earth, he said, if you will, worship me. Does the spirit of prophecy say anything about theosophy? Yes. Interesting, she said something about the Jesuits. Let's see what, if she says anything about theosophy. She does. Here it is, Balkrik uh, letters. Let the world go into spiritualism, into theosophy, into pantheism, if they choose. Here is a package altogether. Yeah. Who was bringing pantheism into the church? Kellogg. What was he teaching? That the Holy Spirit is a different being besides the Father and the Son called God the Holy Spirit. We saw from those who have founded theosophy, they say that the Holy Spirit is really none other than Lucifer. And Mrs. White puts them all together. You think she had a bit of an insight into some of these things more than we thought? Let them go if they choose into theosophy and pantheism. We are to have nothing to do with this deceptive branch of Satan's work. The pleasing sentiments of pantheism will lead many souls into forbidden paths. Brothers and sisters, the teaching today that is common about the Holy Spirit is pantheistic. It is a belief that there is this individual God being called God the Holy Spirit who is everywhere. And you ask people, well, 
where is, uh, you know, where is the Spirit of God? Say, well, the Spirit of God is everywhere. And there in, in their mind, the Spirit of God is someone, an individual being who has his own mind and intelligence, who is everywhere. Not the presence and power of the God who sits on the throne, as we saw from the scriptures. And so here's, here's another example. Dot Magis, the blog of Ignatian spirituality. What's it say there? A prayer to the Holy Spirit. There's a whole prayer you can pray to the Holy Spirit with the understanding and the theology that we saw. So hopefully I'm, I'm just connecting the dots here for you. Are you seeing something develop? There's a very, very serious de deception that is taking place. And then we come to this. This is a book by the Adventist Church. And this is what this book says. This book is about the Trinity. Notice what it says. The oneness in nature and character of the three persons of the God, it raises a very useful question of prayer, praise, and worship. But what about direct prayer to the Holy Spirit? While we have no clear example of or direct command to pray to the Spirit in Scripture, doing so does have in principle some implicit biblical support. It only seems logical that God's people can pray directly to and worship the Holy Spirit. Lord have mercy. Are you seeing something dangerous here? That's exactly the same thing that happens in Rome by the Jesuits and no less than the Pope himself. Now we're getting this recommendation given by the spiritual leaders in the Adventist church to God's people. Now, I, I, I don't know how I can express this enough. This is so serious. This is so serious. They tell you right there in the quote, they say, look, there is no <coughs> biblical instruction to do so. There is no Bible example that we know of that teaches that. But we think that it's only logical and sensible that we are to pray to and worship the Holy Spirit, an individual being or person besides the Father and the Son. You know why they say that? Because they are enslaved to this concept that is portrayed on the cover of the book. This concept of three in one and one in three, that God is three. And it leads you to these conclusions. Brothers and sisters, this opens the door for Satan to come in. When you start stepping outside the bounds of scripture, when it comes to worship, you are on very dangerous ground because there is someone out there in the universe who wants worship. You cannot say, well, there's no Bible evidence for this, but we think we should do it. Someone's going to stand up and claim that worship that is not going to the Father and is not going to the Son. As a matter, as a matter of fact, they actually say, you know, if you, want, if you want love, you can pray to the Father. If you want forgiveness, you can pray to Jesus. And if you want power and gifts and victory over sin, you are to pray to them. Holy Spirit. This is not the only place where it says there's other public in Australia, even the signs of the times, people are recommended. You know, brothers and sisters, we have seriously gotten confused over our worship. That's a sign of the last days. When God's people that He raised to give the last message of mercy to the world end up worshiping the same thing that Rome does in the same way while admitting that there is no biblical support for doing it. You know what Jesus said? By thine own words thou shalt be condemned, and thou shalt be justified. Amen. Here it is right there, and who will see it? Who has believed our report? You know, when, when we share this and, and people say, well, what's the importance of that? I hope you're seeing the importance of it now. This is whether you're worshiping God or worshiping Satan. Omega of apostasy. Omega of apostasy, yes. There's many, many names for it. And when we say this, someone might say, well, well and, and I share this with people, and I get this reaction from time to time. Uh, they'll, they'll get a little bit, uh, you know, concerned. They say, but brother, I, I don't pray to the Holy Spirit. I, I don't worship the Holy Spirit. That's good, and that's commendable. But the problem still is the same. There's a few questions we need to think about, we need to ask. If you believe that God is three and three, uh, three and the three are one, by not praying and worshiping the Holy Spirit, why are you withholding worship from God? And if you are praying to the Holy Spirit and worshiping Him, where is your Bible evidence? This is a lose-lose situation, okay? <laughs> you can't win either way. 
withholding worship, you are withholding something from God because you believe God is three. You should give worship equally. But if you do give worship to three, where is your scripture evidence? Now you're, you're on thin ice. You're outside the bounds of scripture when it comes to worship. And woe unto you if you step outside the bounds of scripture when it comes to worship. You know why? Because the issue and the deception in the last days is over. Worship. Pick another thing and go adventure on it. Risk outside the scripture on it. But it happens to be worship. You don't think the devil has deceived us, brothers and sisters? We are deceived up to... So I just want to make sure that point is clear. When it comes to worship, I just want to put that there. That line jumped before it should. Anyway. In the place in our minds that we reserve for God, most people with the understanding of the Trinity, they reserve a place that has room for how many? Three, isn't that right? Where the place in our mind, whatever it might be, we have room for, we have three slots, so to speak. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, if we believe in that concept. And you know what? You don't have to pray to the Holy Spirit individually. You don't have to worship the Holy Spirit individually because every time you sing, every time you participate in fellowship with brethren, every time you are involved in any aspect of worship, be it prayer, giving, uh, singing, whatever it might be, that worship and adoration is going to the concept that you hold dear. You are exalting someone besides the Father and the Son, even if you don't do it directly. You realize that? And so people who say, oh, well, I don't pray to the Holy Spirit, you're not safe. Because in your mind, where the highest exaltation and adoration goes, it goes to how many? It goes to three. And so we're not just dealing with what you do. It's not that shallow. Oh, I'm still praying to the Holy Spirit. It's not that shallow, brothers and sisters. This is a deep deception. You with me on that? The Bible never reveals that our worship goes to three. Our worship is always and only to the Father. Through the Son, and that's it. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And that is it. There is no one else that we are called upon to honor, worship, praise, and adore. So any worship and adoration and praise outside the Father and the Son, you tell me, who's going to stand up and claim that? There's only one being in the whole universe who said, I want worship. And he has created a very clever deception to get worship. Praise God that the Bible tells us the times of this ignorance God winked at. God is merciful, but God wants us to be intelligent worshipers. God wants us to lose the deception that the devil has uh, created for us. So I hope you really think it matters. So let's quickly here, we'll close. Who is your comforter? I'm going to ask this question. There's all kinds of answers. Depends on your concept of God. How you'll answer this question depends on what you understand about God. Isn't that right? And most people when I ask this question, who's your comforter? They say, the Spirit or God, the Holy Spirit. Say, so is it Jesus? No. Jesus is in heaven. He's in the sanctuary. He's our high priest. But the comforter is the Spirit. And people say, oh, well, because Jesus said, I will send you another comforter and so on and so sorry and so forth but the bible said as we read earlier that the lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is liberty you see our theology this is the practical aspect of of, of what we're talking about this is not just arguments this is practically speaking here who we believe to be our comforter impacts our spiritual walk and our victory over sin you realize that God wants to encourage our faith, not weaken our faith. You know, Jesus came and was tempted in all points like as we are. He became familiar with uh, all the trials and difficulties that we bear, that he might be able to be a faithful and high priest. And in order for him to be able to succor us, to help us. So what good is it if after going through all these experiences and going through all this trouble, he leaves and then he sends us someone else? I am not interested in someone else who has not experienced humanity, who has not experienced temptation, who has not experienced victory over sin. Only Jesus did that. It doesn't matter what you call this someone else. That's, that's secondary. If it is not Christ who is your comforter, you have a problem. Your only other option is who? 
You don't get victory over sin that way. You definitely don't get victory over sin that way. The only way you can get victory over sin is if it's Christ himself living in you. As the comforter. You know what comforter means? Helper. Helper to do what? To overcome sin. That's the whole point of him coming and being tempted. It doesn't make any sense for him to go through all this effort. 33 years and agony and tears and blood and death. And then leave and give me another helper. Why didn't he give me the other helper to begin with? What's the point of him coming and experiencing all that? He is the only helper. And this is what we're told. So the Bible said that, but here's some confirmation from the Spirit of The Savior is our comforter. This I have proved him to be. Amen. Have you proved him to be that for you? That's the question. As by faith we look to Jesus, our faith pierces the shadow. And we adore God for his wondrous love in giving Jesus the comforter. Now that's, that's news to some people. You see, our understanding determines how we answer this question. Who is your comforter? Is it Jesus or is it someone else? In light of that, you cannot understand that when Jesus said, I'll send you the comforter, he was speaking about someone else. That's impossible because that doesn't offer much comfort. That's why he said to his disciples, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. You believe that? He said that. He's, he's, he's the same one who said, I'll send you another comforter. People stop at another and say, see, there you go. He's another comforter. Must be someone else. That proves that's three. But we don't realize what that does to our practical walk day by day. We're actually giving credit for the comfort and help, not to Jesus, to someone else. In so doing, we are actually discrediting Christ. We are robbing him from the credit and honor that is due to him and giving it to someone else. And as I, like I said, I said someone and I said, no, no, Jesus is not my coming. He's up in heaven. I said, who's your coming? He said, it's, it's the God, the Holy Spirit. I said, it's not Jesus. I said, no. And this brother, he told me, you know, he, he prays and he thanks the Holy Spirit. And when he gets to heaven, he's looking forward to meeting the Holy Spirit and thanking him for his help, you know, in, in the Christian walk. And Jesus would be weeping at that because you know who deserves all that credit? It's Christ. He's, Christ is the one who's doing it. And Christ is probably doing it despite this poor brother's poor understanding. But the credit is all going somewhere else. God does not want us to worship him like this, brothers and sisters. The devil is responsible for all this confusion. We read this yesterday, and this is what Ellen White taught her children. This is what Willie White said. Uh, the statements and arguments of some of our ministers in their effort to prove that the Holy Spirit is an individual, as our God the Father and Christ the Eternal Son, have perplexed me and sometimes they have made me sad. One popular teacher said, we may regard him as the fellow who is down here running things. 1935, this letter was written. So here is Ellen White's son. This is what he was taught. This is what he understood from his mother. He did not understand that the Holy Spirit is someone other than the Father and the Son. As a matter of fact, there were ministers in his day who were trying to prove that the Holy Spirit is an individual, just like the Father and the Son, another individual. So the devil was still trying to bring this problem, this heresy, into the Adventist church. He tried it through Brother Chapman, through Kellogg, and here's Willie White saying, you know what, I'm hearing ministers teach this. And when ministers are trying to do this, this has perplexed me and it has made me sad. And to this day, ministers are still doing this. The majority of ministers in this church are still doing this. Some of them don't understand what they're doing. You realize that? Some of them don't understand some of the things we shared here. That's why we're sharing them. You see, brothers and sisters, the devil has been busy assaulting God's people. Big time. And we have been fast asleep. And it's about time we wake up. The hour is late. Christ wants to shine through us. And he deserves to get the credit, not someone else. And he wants us to be intelligent worshipers of him. When we reveal Christ, that's who we're revealing. We're not revealing someone else. No matter what he might be called or no, no matter what name he might go by. So just in closing here, revision. In 1891, the devil tried to bring in this deception. Again in 1903. 1928, Leroy Froome with the book, The Coming of the Comforter. And we read it in 2002. And of course, these things were not new. They have been there from before. 
What is the common denominator between all these times and people and concepts that are represented here? The common denominator between all of them. It's interesting. Common denominator between Adventist minister, Adventist doctor, Adventist historian, Adventist theologians today, Islam, Rome and the Jesuit order, and New Age theosophy and pantheistic believers. Common denominator between all of that. It's this. That the Holy Spirit is someone other than Christ and the Father. Some say it's Gabriel, some say it's God, the Holy Spirit. Whatever it might be, there is a common denominator. Isn't that amazing? Same error, different form. And that's what we were warned. That's the devil working. Of course, but that was defeated, that was defeated. By then, the pioneers and Ellen White were dead. That had some trouble. But by, 2000, by now, 2013, it is the general standard majority belief. So much so that when you get up to speak about it or say a word, an objection, you are called a heretic, a troubler of Israel, and an agent of Satan. You're familiar with these accusations? And Satan, brothers and sisters, has been so busy. I'm telling you things that I've heard from people, personally. But we don't share these things to condemn people. That's not the point of this. The point of this is this. Satan has hoodwinked us big time. And it's about time we wake up. Now, it's good we're here and we know that. But God has many people who love him who need to know the truth. That's why we're sharing some of these things. And so, finally, we'll close with this verse that where the title of this study comes from. Deuteronomy 32, 16 and 17. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. According to the Bible, new gods are what? Devils, that's what it says there. God, the Holy Spirit, is a new God. It's not in the Bible. It was not a God that was feared by our fathers. All our spiritual forefathers, pioneers, church in the wilderness, apostles, Christ, all the way back to Moses, first author of the scriptures. None of these fathers knew or feared this God called God, the Holy Spirit, that is commonly worshipped today. And the Bible says new gods are an abomination. They are actually devils. Devil worship among Christians. Wonder of wonders. That's how the devil is going to receive worship. So brothers and sisters, beware, beware, beware. You know, it's good that you know some of these things. You know, I'm sure you know a lot of people who don't know some of these things. That's why we're sharing. So I pray that this heavy meaty study was not too much for you if you were blessed by this message remember to subscribe and share it with others we're available on apple podcasts spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts your prayers and support are appreciated may god richly bless you through his son jesus